Section 17 of Famous Sea Fights by John R. Hale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brian von Diedenroth. Famous Sea Fights by John R. Hale. Section 17, Chapter 10. Hampton Roads, Part 1. The Coming of Steam and Armored Navies. The Fight in Hampton Roads. March, 1862. Trafalgar was the greatest fight of the sailing ships. There were later engagements, which were fought under sail, but no battle of such decisive import. It was a fitting close to a heroic era in the history of naval war. A period of not much more than four centuries in thousands of years. Before it came the long ages in which the fighting ship depended more upon the oar than the sail, or on the oar exclusively. After it came our present epoch of machine-propelled warships, bringing with it wide-sweeping changes in construction, armament, and naval tactics. Inventive pioneers were busy with projects for the coming revolution in naval war while Nelson was still living. The Irish-American engineer Fulton had tried to persuade Napoleon to adopt steam propulsion and had astonished the Parisians by showing them his little steamer making its way up the Seine with clumsy paddles churning up the waters and much sooty smoke pouring from its tall, thin funnel. The emperor thought it was a scientific toy. Old admirals, most conservative of men, declared that a gunboat with a few long sweeps, or oars, would be a handier fighting ship in a calm, and if there was any kind of wind, a spread of sail was better than all the Americans' tea kettle devices. Fulton went back to America to run passenger steamers on the Hudson and tell unbelieving commodores and captains that the future of the sea power lay with the tea kettle ships. In the days of the long peace that followed Waterloo and the great industrial development that came with it, the steam engine and the paddle steamer made their way into the commercial fleets of the world, slowly and timidly at first, for it was a long time before a steamship could be provided with enough efficient engine power to enable her to show the way to a smart clipper-built sailing ship and the early marine engines were fearfully uneconomical steam had obtained a recognized position in small ships for short voyages ferry boats river steamers and coasting craft but on the open ocean the sailing ship still held its own an eminent scientist proved the demonstration that no steamship would ever be able to cross the Atlantic under steam alone. He showed that to do so, it would be necessary for her to carry a quantity of coal exceeding her entire tonnage capacity. And he expressed his readiness to eat the first steamer that made the voyage from Liverpool to New York. But he lived to regret his offer. In 1838, the Great Western and the Sirius inaugurated the steam passenger service across the Atlantic, and the days of the liner began. 
By this time, paddle-wheel gunboats were finding their way into the British Navy, and other powers were beginning to follow the example of England. Steamships were first in action in 1840, when Sir Charles Napier employed them side by side with sailing ships that had shared the triumphs of Nelson. This was in the attack on Acre, when England intervened to check the revolt of the Pasha of Egypt, Ibrahim, against his suzerain, the Sultan. But still the steamship was regarded as an auxiliary. The great three-decker battleships, the smart sailing frigates, were the main strength of navies. The paddle steamer was a defective type of warship, because her paddle boxes and paddle wheels and her high-placed engines presented a huge target singularly vulnerable. A couple of shots might disable in a minute her means of propulsion. True, she had masts and sails, but if she could not use her engines, the paddles would prove a drag upon all her movements. It was the invention of the screw propeller that made steam propulsion for warships really practical. Brunel was one of the greatest advocates of the change. He was a man who was in many ways before his time, and he had to encounter a more than unusual amount of official conservatist obstruction. For years, the veteran officers who advised the Admiralty opposed and ridiculed the invention. When at last it was fitted to a gunboat, the Rattler, it was obvious that it provided the best means of applying steam propulsion to the purposes of naval war. The propeller was safe underwater, and the engines could be placed low down in the ship. By 1854, when the Crimean War began, both the British and French navies possessed a number of steam-propelled line-of-battle ships, frigates, and gunboats fitted with the screw. They had also some old paddle ships, but in the fleets dispatched to the Baltic and the Black Sea, there were still a considerable number of sailing ships, and a fleet still did most of its work under sail. Even the steamships had only what we should now describe as auxiliary engines. The most powerful line of battleships in the British Navy had engines of only 400 to 600 horsepower. With such relatively small power, they still had to depend chiefly on their sails. Tugboats were attached to the fleets to tow the sailing ships when the steamships were using their engines. Another change was taking place in the armament of warships and coast defenses. The rifled cannon was still in the experimental stage, but explosive shells, which in Nelson's days were only fired from mortars at very short range, had now been adapted to guns mounted on the broadside and the coast battery. Solid shot were still largely used, but the coming of the shell meant that there would be terrible loss in action in the crowded gun decks, and inventors were already proposing that ships should be armored to keep these destructive missiles from penetrating their sides. The attack on the seafront of Sebastopol by the Allied fleets on 17 October 1854 was the event that brought home to the minds of even the most conservative 
the necessity of a great change in warship construction. It rang the knell of the old wooden walls and led to the introduction of armor-clad navies. The idea of protecting ships from the fire of artillery and musketry by iron plating was an old one, and the wonder is that it did not much earlier receive practical application. The Dutch claim to have been the pioneers of ironclad building more than 300 years ago. During the famous siege of Antwerp by the Spaniards in 1585, the people of the city built a huge flat-bottomed warship, armored with heavy iron plates, which they named the Finnis Belly, a boastful expression of the hope that she would end the war. An old print of the Finnis Belly shows a four-masted ship with a high poop and a forecastle, but with a low freeboard amidships. On this lower deck, taking up half the length of the ship, is an armored citadel with portholes for four heavy guns on each side. The roof of the citadel has a high bulwark, loopholed for musketry. On three of the masts, there were also crow's nests or round tops for musketeers. Heavily weighted with her armor, the ship had a deep draft of water and probably steered badly. In descending the Scheldt to attack the Spaniards, she ran aground in a hopeless position under their batteries and fell into the hands of the Spanish commander, the Duke of Parma. He kept the Finnis belly as a curiosity till the end of the siege and then had her dismantled. If she had scored a success, armored navies would no doubt have made their appearance in the 17th century. Between the days of the Finnis Belly and the coming of the first ironclads, there were numerous projects of inventors. In 1805, a Scotchman named Gillespie proposed the mounting of guns and ponderous mortars in revolving armored turrets, both in fortifications on shore and on floating batteries. Two years later, Abraham Bloodgood of New York designed a floating battery with an armored turret. During the war between England and the United States in 1812, an American engineer, John Stevens, who was a man in advance of his time, proposed the construction of a steam-propelled warship with a ram bow and with her guns protected by shields. He prepared a design but failed to persuade the Navy Department that it was practical. His son, Robert L. Stevens, improved the design, made the experiments with guns, projectiles, and armor plates, and at last, in 1842, obtained a vote of Congress for the building of the Stevens Battery, a low freeboard ram, steam-propelled, and armed with eight heavy guns mounted on her center line on turntables protected by armored breastworks. The methods of the American Navy were very dilatory. Professional opinion was opposed to Stevens, whose project was regarded as that of a crank and the ship was left unfinished for years. She was still on the stocks when the Civil War began. Then other types came into fashion, and she was broken up on the ways. 
The man who introduced the armor-clad ship into the world's navies was the Emperor Napoleon III, the same who introduced rifled field artillery into the armies of the world. Like other great revolutions, this epoch-making change in naval war began in a small way. What forced the question upon the Emperor's attention was the failure of the combined French and English fleets in the attack on the sea forts of Sebastopol on 17 October 1854. The most powerful ships in both navies had engaged the sea forts and suffered such loss and injury that it was obvious that if the attack had been continued, the results would have been disastrous. Some means must be found of keeping explosive shells out of a ship's gun decks, if they were ever to engage land batteries on anything like equal terms. Under the Emperor's direction, the French naval architects designed four ships of a new type, which were rapidly constructed in the Imperial dockyards. They were floating batteries, not intended to take part in fleet actions, but only to be used against fortifications. Their broad beam, heavy lines, rounded bows, and engines of only 225 horsepower condemn them to slow speed just sufficient to place them in firing position. They were armored with 4-inch iron and armed with 18 50-pounder guns. The portholes had heavy iron ports, which were closed while the guns were reloading. Three of these floating batteries, the Devastation, Lave, and Tonand, came into action against the shore batteries at Kinburn on 17 October 1855, the anniversary of the attack on the Sebastopol sea forts. There was some difficulty in getting into position, as they could just crawl along and steered abominably. But when they opened fire at 800 yards at 9 a.m., they silenced and wrecked the Russian batteries in 85 minutes, themselves suffering only trifling damage and not losing a dozen men. It was the first and last fight of the floating batteries. But while in England, men were still discussing the problem of the seagoing ironclad, the French constructors were solving it. They had to look not to parliamentary and departmental committees, but to the initiative and support of an intelligent autocrat. So events went quicker in France. In 1858, the keels of the first three French seagoing armor-clads were laid down at Toulon, and next year the armored frigate Gloyer, the first of the European ironclads, was launched and every dockyard in France was busy constructing armor-clads or rebuilding and armoring existing ships. France had gained a start in the building of the new type of warship. When the dreadnought was launched, it was said somewhat boastfully that single-handed she could destroy the whole North Sea fleet of Germany. It might be more truly said of the Gloyer that she could have met single-handed and destroyed the British Channel or Mediterranean fleet of the day. 
It was the moment when the tension with France over the Orsini conspiracy had caused a widespread anticipation of war between that country and England and had called the volunteer force into existence to repel invasion. But the true defense must be in the command of the sea, and the first English ironclad, the old warrior, was laid down at the Thames Ironworks. Work was begun in June 1859, and the ship was launched in December 1860. She was modeled on the old steam frigates for the special types of modern battleships and armored cruisers were still in the future. She was built of iron with unarmored ends and four and a quarter inch iron plating on a backing of 18 inches of teak over 200 feet amidships of her total length of 380 feet. There was a race of ironclad building between France and England in which the latter won easily, and it was only for a very short time that our sea supremacy was endangered by the French Emperor's naval enterprise. But when the English and French fleets entered the Gulf of Mexico in 1861, our ships were all wooden walls, while the French Admiral's flag flew on the ironclad Normandy the first armored ship that ever crossed the Atlantic. Notwithstanding this fact, American writers are fond of saying, and many Englishmen believe, that the introduction of armored navies was the outcome of the American Civil War of the early 60s. All that is true is that the War of Secession gave the world the spectacle of the first fight between armor-clad ships and the experiences of that war greatly influenced the direction taken in the general policy of designers of ironclad warships. Towards the close of the Crimean War, a Swedish engineer settled in the United States, John Ericsson, had sent to the Emperor Napoleon a design for a small armored turret ship of what was afterwards known as the monitor type. He wrote to the emperor that he asked for no reward or profit, for he was only anxious to help France in her warfare with Russia, the hereditary foe of Sweden. The war was drawing to a close, and for his future projects, the emperor wanted large seagoing ships, not light draft vessels for work in the shallows of the Baltic. So Ericsson received a complimentary letter of thanks and a medal, and kept his design for later use. His opportunity came in the first months of the Civil War. In the fifty years between the War of 1812 and the outbreak of the struggle between North and South, the American Navy had been greatly neglected. It was a favorite theory in the United States that a Navy could be improvised, and that the great thing would be, in case of war, to send out swarms of privateers to prey upon the enemy's commerce. Very little money was spent on the Navy or the dockyards. On the Navy list, there were a number of old ships, some of which had fought against England in 1812. There were a number of small craft for revenue purposes, a lot of sailing ships, 
and a few fairly modern steam frigates and smaller steam vessels depending largely on sail power and known as sloops of war, really small frigates. While the dockyards of Europe had long been busy with the construction of the new armored navies, the United States had not a single ironclad. Both parties to the quarrel had to improvise up-to-date ships. Sea power was destined to play a great part in the conflict. As soon as the Washington government realized that it was going to be a serious and prolonged war, not an affair of a few weeks, a general plan of operations was devised, of which the essential feature was the isolation of the Southern Confederacy. When the crisis came in 1861, the United States had done little to open and occupy the vast territories between the Rocky Mountains and the Mississippi Valley. The population of the states was chiefly to be found between the Mississippi and the Atlantic, and in that region lay the states of the Confederacy. They were mainly agricultural communities with hardly any factories. For arms, munitions of war, and supplies of many kinds, they would have to depend on importation from beyond their frontiers. It was therefore decided that while the United States armies operated on the northern or land frontier of the Confederacy, its sea frontiers on the Atlantic and the Gulf of Mexico should be closely blockaded and its river frontier, the line of the Mississippi, should be seized and held by a mixed naval and military force. For these last operations, troops on the banks and gunboats on the river had to combine. It was said at the time that on the Mississippi, army and navy were like the two blades of a pair of shears, useless apart but very effective when working together. Strange to say, it was not the industrial north but the agricultural South that put the first ironclad into commission as a weapon against the coast blockade. When the secessionist forces seized the Navy Yard at Norfolk in Virginia, a fine steam frigate, the Merrimack, built in 1855, was under repair there. The guard of the dockyard set her on fire before surrendering, but the flames were extinguished and the Merrimack, with her upper works badly damaged, was in possession of the Southerners. A northern squadron of frigates and gunboats, steam and sailing ships, anchored in Hampton Roads, the landlocked sheet of water into which runs not only the Elizabeth River, which gives access to Norfolk, but also the James River, the waterway to Richmond, then the Confederate capital. The northern shores of Hampton Roads were held by Federal troops, the southern by the Confederates. Presently, spies brought to Washington the news that the rebels were preparing a terrible new kind of warship at Norfolk to destroy the squadron in Hampton Roads and raise the blockade. The news was true. The Confederates had cut down the Merrimack nearly to the water's edge and built a solid deck over her at this level. Then on the deck they erected a huge deck house with sloping sides pierced with portholes 
for ten heavy smooth-bore guns. The funnel passed up through the roof of the deckhouse. There were no masts, only a flagstaff. The flat deck space, fore and aft, and the sloping sides of the deckhouse were to be armored with four inches of iron, but there were no armor plates available. Railway iron was collected and rolled into long, narrow strips, and these were bolted on the structure in two layers, laid crosswise in different directions. An armored conning tower, low and three-sided, was built on the front of the deckhouse roof. The bow was armed with a mass of iron in order to revive the ancient methods of attack by ramming. Thus equipped, the Merrimack was commissioned under the command of Commodore Buchanan and renamed the Confederate States Ironclad Steam Ram Virginia. But the ship was always generally known by her former name. At noon on Saturday, 8 March 1862, the Merrimack started on her voyage down the Elizabeth River. It was to be at once her trial trip and her first fighting expedition. She was to attack and destroy the Federal blockading fleet in Hampton Roads. Up to the last moment, the ship was crowded with working men. They were cleared out of her as she cast off from the quay. As the Merrimack went down the river, the officers were telling off the men to their stations. Not one of her guns had ever been fired. There had been a few hurried drills. Everything was improvised. The first disappointment was to find that the engines, doing their best she could, only make five knots. She steered badly, answering her helm slowly and turning on a wide circle. As one of her officers put it, she was as unmanageable as a waterlogged vessel. She drew 22 feet of water so that she had to keep the narrow channel in the middle of the river, and the risk of getting hopelessly aground was serious. The Confederate troops crowded the batteries on either bank and cheered the Merrimack as she went slowly down. It was a fine day, with bright sunshine and absolutely no wind and the broad stretch of water in Hampton Roads was like a pond. At the same time, a small squadron of Confederate gunboats came down the James River to cooperate in the attack. These ships were the Yorktown, with 12 guns, the Jamestown, with 2 guns, and the Teaser, with 1 gun. Two other gunboats, the Beaufort and the Raleigh, followed the Merrimack, but the chief hope of the attack was placed upon the ironclad. The nine vessels of the blockading fleet lay along the north side of Hampton Roads, from the point at Newport News to Old Point Comfort, where the roads open on Chesapeake Bay. They were strung out over a distance of about eight miles. The shore on that side was held by the Federals, and the point at Newport News bristled with batteries. Near the point were anchored the sailing frigate Congress of 50 guns and the sloop Cumberland, a full-rigged three-master, 
armed with 30 guns. On board the Federal ships, there was not the remotest expectation of attack. Clothes were drying in the rigging, a crowd of boats lay alongside. It was known that the Confederates had been busy converting the old Merrimack into an armored ram at Norfolk Navy Yard, but it was not believed that she was yet ready for action. The men had just eaten their dinners and were having a pipe when the first alarm was raised. By the wharf, at Newport News, lay a tugboat, the Zawav, which had been armed with a 30-pounder gun and was rated as a gunboat and tendered to the fleet. Her captain noticed the smoke of steamers coming down the Elizabeth River and cast off from the wharf and went alongside the Cumberland. The officer of the watch told him to run across to the river mouth and find out what was coming down from Norfolk. It did not take us long to find out, he says, for he had not gone over two miles when we saw what to all appearances looked like the roof of a very big barn belching forth smoke as from a chimney. We were all divided in opinion as to what was coming. The boatswain's mate was the first to make out the Confederate flag, and then we all guessed it was the Merrimack come at last. The little Zoav fired half a dozen shots, which fell short. The Merrimack took no notice of this demonstration, but steadily held her way. Then the Cumberland signaled to the Zoav to come back, and she ran past the anchored warships and under shelter of the batteries. These were now opening fire on the Confederate gunboats issuing from the James River. The Congress and Cumberland had cleared for action and weighed anchor. Other ships of the fleet had taken the alarm and were coming up into the roads to help their consorts. The Confederate batteries at Sewell's Point opened fire at long range against these ships, and they stood into the roads. The Merrimack was steering straight for the Cumberland. In grim silence, her unarmored consorts keeping well astern. When the range was about three-quarters of a mile, the two Federal ships opened fire with the heavy guns mounted on pivots on their upper decks, and the shore batteries also brought some guns to bear. A heavy cannonade from sea and shore was now echoing over the landlocked waters, but the Merrimack fired not a gun in reply. A few cannon shot struck her sloping armor sides and rebounded with a ringing clang. The rest ricocheted harmlessly over the water, throwing up sparkling geysers of foam in the bright sunlight. At last, when the range was only some 500 yards, the bow gun of the Merrimack was fired at the Cumberland, with an aim so true that it killed or wounded most of the men at one of her big pivot guns. A moment after the ram was a beam of the Congress, and fired her starboard battery of four guns into her at deadly close range. With the projectiles from the 25 guns of the Congress and 15 of the Cumberland rattling on her armor, riddling her funnel, and destroying davits, rails, and deck fittings, the Merrimack steamed straight for the Cumberland, which made an ineffectual attempt to avoid the coming collision. At the last moment, 
some men were killed and wounded in the gun deck of the ram by shots entering a porthole. Then came a grinding crash as the iron ram of the Merrimack struck the Cumberland almost at right angles on the starboard side under her forerigging. On board the Confederate ship, the shock was hardly felt, but the Cumberland heeled over with the blow and righted herself again as the Merrimack reversed her engines and cleared her, leaving a huge breach in the side of her enemy. The ram had crushed in several of her frames and made a hole in her side big enough to drive a coach and horses through. The water was pouring into her like a mill race. From the Merrimack, lying close alongside with silent guns, came a hail and a summons to surrender. From the deck of the Cumberland, her commander Morris replied with a curt refusal. The firing began again. The Cumberland's men, driven from the gun deck by the inrush of rising water, took refuge on the upper deck. Some jumped overboard and began swimming ashore. Others kept her two pivot guns in action for a few minutes. Then, with a lurch, she went down. Boats from the shore saved a few of her people. Those who watched from the batteries could hardly believe their eyes, as they saw the masts of the warship sticking out of the water where a few minutes ago the Cumberland had waited in confidence for the attack of the improvised rebel ironclad. End of section 17. Recording by Brian von Diedenroth. www.brianvondedenroth.com